Chapter One of Linda Tressel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Simon Evers. Linda Tressel by Anthony Trollope. Chapter One. The troubles and sorrows of Linda Tressel, who is the heroine of the little story now about to be told arose from the too rigid virtue of her nearest and most loving friends, as troubles will sometimes come from rigid virtue, when rigid virtue is not accompanied by sound sense, and especially when it knows little or nothing of the softness of mercy. The nearest and dearest friend of Linda Trussell was her aunt, the widow Staubach, Madame Charlotte Staubach, as she had come to be called in the little town of Nuremberg, where she lived. In Nuremberg all houses are picturesque, but you shall go through the entire city and find no more picturesque abode than the small red house with the three gables close down by the riverside in the Schutt Island, the little island made by the river Pegnitz in the middle of the town. They who have seen the widow Staubach's house will have remembered it, not only because of its bright colour and its sharp gables, but also because of the garden which runs between the house and the water's edge and yet the garden was no bigger than may often nowadays be seen in the balconies of the mansions of Paris and of London. Here Linda Tressel lived with her aunt, and here also Linda had been born. Linda was the orphan of her Tressel, who had for many years been what we may call town clerk to the magistrates of Nuremberg. Chance, in middle life, had taken her to Cologne, a German city indeed, as was his own, but a city so far away from Nuremberg that its people and its manners were as strange to him as though he had gone beyond the reach of his own mother tongue. But here he had married, and from Cologne had brought home his bride to the picturesque red gabled house by the water's side in his own city. His wife's only sister had also married in her own town, and that sister was the virtuous but rigid Aunt Charlotte, to live with whom had been the fate in life of Linda Tressel. It need not be more than told in the fewest words that the town clerk and the town clerk's wife both died when Linda was but an infant, and that the husband of her aunt Charlotte died also. In Nuremberg there is no possession so much coveted and so dearly loved as that of the house in which the family lives. Her Tressel had owned the house with the three gables, and so had his father before him, and to the father it had come from an uncle whose name had been different and to him from some other relative. But it was an old family property, and, like other houses in Nuremberg, was to be kept in the hands of the family while the family might remain, unless some terrible ruin should supervene. When Linda was but six years old, her aunt, the widow, came to Nuremberg to inhabit the house which the Tressels had left as an only legacy to their daughter. But it was understood when she did so that a right of living in the house for the remainder of her days was to belong to Madame Staubach, because of the surrender she thus made of whatever of a home was then left to her in Cologne. There was probably no deed executed to this effect, nor would it have been thought that any deed was necessary. Should Linda Trussell, when years had rolled on, be taken as a wife, and should the husband live in the Red House, there would still be room for Linda's aunt. And by no husband in Nuremberg, who should be told that such an arrangement had been anticipated, would such an arrangement be opposed? Mothers-in-law, aunts, maiden sisters, and dependent female relatives, in all degrees, are endured with greater patience 
and treated with a gentler hand in patient Bavaria than in some lands farther west where life is faster, and in which men's shoulders are more easily galled by slight burdens. And as poor little Linda Tressel had no other possession but the house, as all other income, slight as it might be, was to be brought with her by Aunt Charlotte, Aunt Charlotte had at least a right to the free use of the roof over her head. It is necessary that so much should be told. But Linda's troubles did not come from the divided right which she had in her father's house. Linda's troubles, as have been before said, sprang not from her aunt's covetousness, but from her aunt's virtue. Perhaps, we might more truly say, from her aunt's religion. Nuremberg is one of those German cities in which a stranger finds it difficult to understand the religious idiosyncrasies of the people. It is in Bavaria, and Bavaria, as he knows, is Roman Catholic. But Nuremberg is Protestant, and the stranger, when he visits the two cathedrals, those of St. Sebald and St. Lawrence, finds it hard to believe that they should not be made to resound with masses, so like are they in all respects to other Romanist cathedrals which he has seen. But he is told that they are Lutheran and Protestant, and he is obliged to make himself aware that the prevailing religion of Nuremberg is Lutheran, in spite of what to him are the Catholic appearances of the churches. Now the widow Staubach was among Protestants the most Protestant, going far beyond the ordinary amenities of Lutheran teaching, as at present taught, in her religious observances, her religious loves, and her religious antipathies. The ordinary Lutheran of the German cities does not wear his religion very conspicuously. It is not a trouble to him in his daily life, causing him to live in terror as to the life to come. That it is a comfort to him, let us not doubt. But it has not on him generally that outward, ever-palpable, unmistakable effect, making its own of his gait, his countenance, his garb, his voice, his words, his eyes, his thoughts, his clothes, his very sneeze, his cough, his sighs, his groans, which is the result of Calvinistic impressions thoroughly brought home to the mind and lovingly entertained in the heart. Madame Staubach was in truth a German Anabaptist, but it will be enough for us to say that her manners and gait were the manners and gait of a Calvinist. While Linda Tressel was a child, she hardly knew that her aunt was peculiar in her religious ideas. That mode of life which comes to a child comes naturally, and Linda, though she was probably not allowed to play as freely as did the other bairns around her, though she was taken more frequently to the house of worship which her aunt frequented, and charged more strictly in the reading of godly books, did not know till she was a child no longer that she was subjected to harder usage than others endured. But when Linda was eleven, the widow was persuaded by a friend that it was her duty to send her niece to school. And when Linda at sixteen ceased to be a schoolgirl, she had learned to think that the religion of her aunt's neighbours was a more comfortable religion than that practised by her aunt. And when she was eighteen, she had further learned to think that the life of certain neighbour girls was a pleasanter life than her own. When she was twenty, she had studied the subject more deeply, and told herself that though her spirit was prone to rebel against her aunt, that though she would fain have been allowed to do as did other girls of twenty, yet she knew her aunt to be a good woman, and knew that it behoved her to obey. Had not her aunt come all the way from Cologne, from the distant city of Rhenish Prussia, to live in Nuremberg for her sake, and should she be unfaithful and rebellious? 
Now, Madame Starbuck understood and appreciated the proneness to rebellion in her niece's heart, but did not quite understand, and perhaps could not appreciate, the attempt to put down that rebellion which the niece was ever making from day to day. I have said that the widow Starbuck had brought with her to Nuremberg some income upon which to live in the red house with the three gables. Some small means of her own she possessed, some few hundred florins a year, which were remitted to her punctually from Cologne. But this would not have sufficed, even for the moderate wants of herself, her niece, and of the old maid Tetchen, who lived with them, and who had lived with Linda's mother. But there was a source of income very ready to the widow's hand, and of which it was a matter of course that she should in her circumstances avail herself. She and her niece could not fill the family home, and a portion of it was let to a lodger. This lodger was Herr Steinmark, Peter Steinmark, who had been clerk to Linda's father when Linda's father had been clerk to the city magistrates, and who was now clerk to the city magistrates himself. Peter Steinmark in the old days had inhabited a garret in the house, and had taken his meals at his master's table. But now the first floor of the house was his own, the big, airy, pleasant chamber looking out from under one gable on to the clear water, and the broad passage under the middle gable, and the square, large bedroom, the room in which Linda had been born, under the third gable. The windows from these apartments all looked out on to the slow-flowing but clear stream, which ran so close below them that the town clerk might have sat and fished from his windows had he been so minded, for there was no road there, only the narrow slip of a garden no broader than a balcony. And opposite, beyond the river, where the road ran, there was a broad place, the Rudenplatz, and every house surrounding this was picturesque with different colours and with many gables, and the points of the houses rose up in sharp pyramids, of which every brick and every tile was in its place, sharp, clear, well-formed and appropriate, in those very inches of space which each was called upon to fill. For in Nuremberg it is the religion of the community that no house shall fall into decay, that no form of city beauty shall be allowed to vanish, that nothing of picturesque antiquity shall be changed. From age to age, though stones and bricks are changed, the buildings are the same, and the medieval forms remain, delighting the taste of the traveller as they do the pride of the burgher. Thus it was that Herr Steinmark, the clerk of the magistrates in Nuremberg, had for his use as pleasant an abode as the city could furnish him. Now it came to pass that, during the many years of their residence beneath the same roof, there grew up a strong feeling of friendship between Peter Steinmark and the widow Staubach, so strong that in most worldly matters the widow would be content to follow her friend Peter's counsels without hesitation. And this was the case, although Peter by no means lived in accordance with the widow's tenets as to matters of religion. It is not to be understood that Peter was a godless man, not so especially, or that he lived a life in any way scandalous, or open to special animadversion from the converted. But he was a man of the world, very fond of money, very fond of business, doing no more in the matter of worship than is done ordinarily by men of the world, one who would not scruple to earn a few gulden on the suddenly if such earning came in his way, who liked his beer and his pipe, and above all things, like the fees and perquisites of office on which he lived and made his little wealth, who rarely, on his behalf, put forth that voice of warning which was so frequently heard by her niece. But there are women of the class to which Madame Staubach belonged, 
who think that the acerbities of religion are intended altogether for their own sex. That men ought to be grateful to them who will deny? Such women seem to think that heaven will pardon that hardness of heart which it has created in man, and which the affairs of the world seem almost to require, but that it will extend no such forgiveness to the feminine creation. It may be necessary that a man should be stiff-necked, self-willed, eager on the world, perhaps even covetous and given to worldly lusts. But for a woman it behoves her to crush herself, so that she may be at all points submissive, self-denying, and much suffering. She should be used to thorns in the flesh, and to thorns in the spirit, too. Whatever may be the thing she wants, that thing she should not have. And if it be so that, in her feminine weakness, she be not able to deny herself, there should be those around her to do the denial for her. Let her crush herself as it becomes a poor female to do, or let there be some other female to crush her if she lacked the strength, the purity, and the religious fervour which such self-crushing requires. Poor Linda Tressel had not much taste for crushing herself, but Providence had supplied her with one who had always been willing to do that work for her. And yet the aunt had ever dearly loved her niece, and dearly loved her now in these days of our story. If your eye offend you, shall you not pluck it out? After a sort, Madame Starback was plucking out her own eye when she led her niece such a life of torment as will be described in these pages. When Linda was told one day by Tetchen, the old servant, that there was a marriage on foot between her Steinmark and Aunt Charlotte, Linda expressed her disbelief in very strong terms. When Tetchen produced many arguments to show why it should be so, and put aside, as of no avail, all the reasons given by Linda to show that such a marriage could hardly be intended, Linda was still incredulous. "'You do not know Aunt Charlotte, Tetchen, not as I do,' said Linda. "'I've lived in the same house with her for fourteen years,' said Tetchen angrily. "'Yet you do not know her. I'm sure she will not marry Peter Steinmark. She will never marry anybody.' She does not think of such things. Poor, said Tetchen, all women think of them. Their heads are always together, and Peter talks as though he meant to be master of the house, and he tells her everything about Ludovic. I heard them talking about Ludovic for the hour together the other night. You shouldn't listen, Tetchen. I didn't listen, miss, but when one is in and out one cannot stop one's ears. I hope there isn't going to be anything wrong between them about the house.' "'My aunt will never do anything wrong, and my aunt will never marry Peter Steinmark.' So Linda declared in her aunt's defence, and in her latter assertion she was certainly right. Madden Starbach was not minded to marry her Steinmark, but she might have done so had she wished it, for her Steinmark asked her to take him more than once. At this time the widow Steinbach was a woman not much over forty years of age, and though it can hardly be said she was comely, Yet she was not without a certain prettiness, which might have charms in the judgment of her Steinbach. She was very thin, and her face was pale, and here and there was the beginning of a wrinkle telling as much of trouble as of years. But her eyes were bright and clear, and her smooth hair, of which much the edge was allowed to be seen beneath her cap, was of as rich a brown as when she had married Gaspar Steinbach, now more than twenty years ago. And her teeth were white and perfect, and the oval of her face had not been impaired by time, and her step, though slow, was light and firm, 
and her voice, though sad, was low and soft. In talking to men, to such a man as was her Steinbach, her voice was always low and soft, though there would be a sharp note in it now and again when she would be speaking to Tetchen or her niece. Whether it was her gentle voice, or her bright eyes, or the edge of soft brown hair beneath her cap, or some less creditable feeling of covetousness in regard to the gabled house in the Schutt Island, shall not here be even guessed. But it was the fact that her Steinmark had more than once asked Madame Starbach to be his wife, when Tetchum first imparted her suspicion to Linda. "'And what were they saying about Ludovic?' asked Linda, when Tetchum for the third time came to Linda with her tidings. Now Linda had scolded Tetchum for listening to her aunt's conversation about Ludovic, and Tetchum thought it unjust that she should be interrogated on the subject after being so treated. "'I told you, miss, I didn't hear anything, only just the name.' "'Very well, Tetchum, that will do, and I hope you won't say such things of Aunt Charlotte anywhere else.' "'What harm have I done, Linda? Surely to say of a widow that she's to be married to an honest man is not to say harm.' "'But it is not true, Tetchum, and you should not say it.' Then Tetchum departed quite unconvinced, and Linda began to reflect how far her life would be changed for the better or for the worse, if Tetchum's tidings should ever be made true. But, as has been said before, Tetchum's tidings were never to be made true. But Madame Starbach did not resent the offer made to her. When Peter Steinmark told her that she was a lone woman, left without guidance or protection, she allowed the fact, admitting that guidance would be good for her. When he went on to say that Linda also was in need of protection, she admitted that also. "'She's in sore need,' Madame Starbeck said. "'The poor, thoughtless child!' And when her Steinmark spoke of her pecuniary condition, reminding the widow that were she left without the lodger, the two women could hardly keep the old family roof over their head, Madame Starbeck acknowledged it all, and perhaps went very suddenly to the true point by expressing an opinion that everything would be much better arranged if the house were the property of her Steinmark himself. "'It isn't good the women should own houses,' said Madame Starbeck. "'It should be enough for them that they are permitted to use them.' Then her Steinmark went on to explain that if the widow would consent to become his wife, he thought he could so settle things that, for their lives at any rate, the house should be in his care and management. But the widow would not consent even to speak of such an arrangement as possible. She spoke a word, with a tear in her eye, of the human lord and master who had lived with her for two happy years, and said another word with some mystical allusion to a heavenly husband. And after that, her time Mark felt that he could not please his cause further with any hope of success. "'But why should not Linda be your wife?' said Madame Starbach, as her disappointed suitor was about to retire. The idea had never struck the man's mind before, and now, when the suggestion was made to him, he was for a little while stricken dumb. Why should he not marry Linda Tressel, the niece? Gay, pretty, young, sweet as youth and prettiness and gaiety could make her, a girl than whom there were none prettier, none sweeter, in all Nuremberg, and the real owner, too, of the house in which he lived, instead of the aunt, who was neither gay nor sweet nor young, who, though she was virtuous, self-denying and meek, possessed certainly but few feminine charms. Her Steinmark, though he was a man not by any means living outside the pale of the church to which he belonged, 
was not so strongly given to religious observances as to have preferred the aunt because of her piety and sanctity of life. He was not hypocrite enough to suggest to Madame Staubach that any such feeling warmed his bosom. Why should not Linda be his wife? He sat himself down again in the armchair from which he had risen, and began to consider the question. In the first place, her Steinbach was at this time nearly fifty years old, and Linda Tressel was only twenty. He knew Linda's age well, for he had been an inhabitant of the garret upstairs when Linda was born. What would the Frau Tressel have said that night had any one prophesied to her that her little daughter would hereafter be offered as a wife to her husband's penniless clerk upstairs? But penniless clerks often live to fill their master's shoes, and do sometimes marry their master's daughters. And then Linda was known throughout Nuremberg to be the real owner of the house with the three gables, and her Steinmark had an idea that the Nuremberg magistrates would rise up against him were he to offer to marry the young heiress. And there was a third difficulty. Her Steinmark, though he had no knowledge on the subject, though his suspicions were so slight that he had never mentioned them to his old friend the widow, though he is aware that he had barely a ground for the idea, still had an idea that Linda Tressel's heart was no longer at Linda's own disposal. But nevertheless, the momentous question which had been so suddenly asked him was one which certainly deserved the closest consideration. It showed him at any rate that Linda's nearest friend would help him were he inclined to prosecute such a suit, and that she saw nothing out of course, nothing anomalous, in the proposition. It would be very nice to be the husband of a pretty, gay, sweet-tempered, joyous young girl. It would be very nice to marry the heiress of the house, and to become its actual owner and master. And it would be nice also to be preferred to him of whom Peter Starmark had thought as the true possessor of Linda's heart. If Linda were once his wife, Linda, he did not doubt, would be true to him. In such case, Linda, whom he knew to be a good girl, would overcome any little prejudice of her girlhood. Other men of fifty had married girls of twenty, why should not he? Peter Steinmark, the well-to-do, comfortable, and, considering his age, good-looking town clerk of the city of Nuremberg. He could not bring himself to tell Madame Steinbach that he would transfer his affections to her niece on that occasion on which the question was first asked. He would take a week, he said, to consider. He took the week, made up his mind on the first day of the week, and at the end of the week declared to Madame Staubach that he thought the plan to be a good plan. After that there was much discussion before any further step was taken, and Tetchum was quite sure that their lodger was to be married to Linda's aunt. There was much discussion, and the widow, shocked, perhaps at her own cruelty, almost retreated from the offer she had made. But her Steinmark was emboldened, and was now eager, and held her to her own plan. It was a good plan, and he was ready. He found that he could love the maiden, and he wished to take her to his bosom at once. For a few days the widow's heart relented. For a few days there came across his breast a frail, foolish, human idea of love and passion, and the earthly joy of two young beings happy in each other's arms. For a while she thought with regret of what she was about to do, of the sacrifice to be made, of the sorrow to be endured, of the death-blow to be given to those dreams of love, which doubtless had arisen, though hitherto they were no more than dreams. Madame Starbuck, 
though she was now a saint, had been once a woman, and knew as well as any woman of what nature are the dreams of love which fill the heart of a girl. It was because she knew them so well that she allowed herself only a few hours of such weakness. What? Should she hesitate between heaven and hell, between God and devil, between this world and the next, between sacrifice of time and sacrifice of eternity, when the disposal of her own niece, her own child, her nearest and dearest, was concerned? Was it not fit that the world should be crushed in the bosom of a young girl? And how could it be crushed so effectually as by marrying her to an old man, one whom she respected, but who was otherwise distasteful to her, one who, as a husband, would at first be abhorrent to her. As Madame Starbuck thought of heaven then, a girl who loved and was allowed to indulge her love could hardly go to heaven. "'Let it be so,' she said to Peter Steinmark, after a few days of weak vacillation. "'Let it be so. I think that it will be good for her.' Then Peter Steinmark swore that it would be good for Linda, that it should be good for Linda. His care should be so great that Linda might never doubt the good. "'Peter Steinmark, I am thinking of her soul,' said Madame Stoback. "'I am thinking of that, too,' said Peter. "'One has, you know, to think of everything in turns.' Then there came to be a little difficulty as to the manner in which the proposition should be first made to Linda Tressel. Madame Starbuck thought that it should be made by Peter himself, but Peter was of the opinion that if the house were first broken by Madame Starbuck, final success might be more probably achieved.' "'She owes you obedience, my friend, and she owes me none, as yet,' said Peter. There seemed to be so much of truth in this that Madame Sturbach yielded, and undertook to make the first overture to Linda on behalf of her lover. End of chapter 1